Welcome to Sober Sisters Talk. I'm MG. And I'm Elizabeth Pudwell. Welcome. The speaker series happens once a month. This will be part of our weekly Zoom meeting that happens every Friday night. If you would like to be a part of that meeting, you have to be female. And send us an email at SoberSistersTalk at gmail.com. If you would like to tell your story, please reach out to SoberSistersTalk at gmail.com. We want to have more stories out there in order to help other women. And here's our next speaker. Thanks for listening. Also, we'd love to invite you to a Zoom meeting this Friday night at 6 p.m. Central Standard Time. If you're interested, email SoberSistersTalk at gmail.com and we'll send you the meeting information and password. We hope to see you this Friday. All right. All right. Well, hello. My name is Karen and I'm a grateful member in recovery for sex and love addiction. I am 58 years old. I'm currently not in a relationship. I've been in SLAA for two years. I have a sponsor in SLAA and I'm on step seven. So I want to start by saying thank you, Elizabeth, for the opportunity to ask me to share my story. Thank you. I'd also like to thank MG, Shanda, and everyone else that's involved with making this meeting happen week after week. And I'd like to thank each of you amazing women for holding this sacred space with me tonight. What a blessing. The Friday Night Sober Sisters meeting and Houston's SLA Fellowship are special to me as I continue my journey in recovery. It's in these meetings where I learn to name my sex and love addiction, identify my patterns and programming, and met my amazing sponsor, whom I'd like to thank for her willingness to sponsor me. In my brief two years in the program, my sponsor has walked steadfast with me, guiding me through the steps and guiding me through a move and a move back, a job change, loving me and encouraging me through my pain, joy, sorrows, and victories. In addition to SLAA, I've also attended Al-Anon for 18 years, not because I grew up with alcoholics or alcoholism. There were plenty of isms in my family, just not alcohol. I dated the alcoholics. I was unable to see how unavailable they were but always able to see their potential. I know today they weren't the only ones unavailable. I wasn't available either. Tonight, I'm going to share my story in three segments. First, I'll tell you about my family and my childhood. Second, I will tell you about what brought me into SLAA. And third, what my life is like now. First, my family and childhood. I grew up in a middle-income Christian home with both my mom and dad. My parents were 19 and 21 when they married. They met in college. My parents were married for 37 years before my father passed away from a brain tumor at the age of 57 years old, and my mother is still living. As a family, we moved 10 times by the time I was 17. When I was a baby, we moved because my dad was attending college. Then. As I got older, we moved for my father to advance in his career. I'm the youngest of three children. I have a sister who's four years older than me and a brother who's 13 months to the day older than me. 
And even though as siblings, we are close in age, we did not grow up close. My sister was the hero child and my brother and I shared the roles of lost child and scapegoat. When my brother was born, he had milk allergies, skin allergies, respiratory issues, all of which resulted in him being in and out of children's hospital and the pediatrician's office. My mother was 23 years old with three small children, completely overwhelmed. My dad was attending college and working three jobs. According to my mother, I was a quiet baby that spent a lot of time playing alone in the playpen. With much love, empathy, and compassion, I share with each of you that as parents, my mother and father had their own unhealed, unresolved childhood wounds, patterns, and programming. My mother was an only child. Her mother died when she was three and her father remarried. My father was the oldest of five boys. Understanding their story helps me understand what impeded their ability to parent me well. My father was codependent with my mother. He did not want her to ever be hurt or upset and would tell us kids, don't upset your mother. I did not learn how to have healthy male relationships from my father and my father didn't, and my mother, excuse me, did not have the tools to mother very well or do adulting very well either. Her lack of tools left me with a mother hunger injury in my formative years that I get to heal now. My mother struggled with physical and emotional problems and did not know how to create secure attachment for my siblings and me, or give us the essential elements of maternal care, which is nurturance, protection, and guidance. I internalized my mother's struggles and believed Surely there must be something wrong with me. So I would overfunction, become enmeshed, act overly responsible, and do all the work in relationships. Well, in recovery, I've heard it said, how I am in one relationship is how I am in all my relationships. As a child, I wanted a family to connect with. So my way of coping was going to the neighbor's house and hanging out with them. I began doing this as early as four years of age. I just walked down the street and go to the neighbor's house. They became my family. At seven, we moved again. So off I went to another family. This time we lived in a subdivision. So I had several houses to choose from. I remember at one of the neighbor's houses, the dad had Playboy magazines and his daughter, who was my friend and I would look through them while we were supposed to be playing in her bedroom. I remember that was about the time I began masturbating. At the time, I did not know what I was doing and have since learned that is something children will do to self-soothe or regulate their nervous system. I also remember around that time was when I had my first crush with one of my friend's brothers. I was in third grade. By now, my father's doing well in his career. My mother had completed her nursing degree, began working at the hospital. Early on in her nursing career, she injured her back and had to have back surgery. She was in and out of the hospital for the next 10 years with physical and or emotional problems. 
I don't remember my dad talking to us about what was going on. She'd just be gone. We'd go visit her in the hospital and she'd be in traction for her back. She'd be on medication. I didn't know what was going on. And over time, I became increasingly anxious, angry, and afraid. About that time, we moved again, this time to a new town for my dad's job. I was 13 years old, was naive. I was anxious, angry, and lonely. I was starting my freshman year in high school. My sister left for college, and I don't really remember what my brother was doing. I do remember that my father was always annoyed with him. My brother always seemed to manage to get himself caught or in trouble over silly things. So I tried extra hard to be good, to not upset my mother or my father. On Saturdays, I would clean our house and do the laundry while my parents went grocery shopping. I continued to have an ache and longing for a family, connection to be seen and loved. So off I went, living out my patterns and programming to the new neighbor's house. The new neighbor's mom and dad smoked and drank and cussed and made crude sexual jokes quite often. Their house was the party house. Their house was fun. They had four children, two sisters, 14 and 15 years of age. They were my friends, a 19 year old brother and a 10 year old brother. I remember watching soap operas with the sisters and their mom. Lord, we talked about those characters like they were real people and like they were real in our lives. Hell, soap operas are where I learned how to have relationships. I can also remember listening to Conway Twitty, Loretta Lynn and Tammy Wynette. I didn't know the lyrics to those songs were not how you do relationships. I thought the 19 year old was cute. He was the cute brother of theirs. He would flirt with me. He would give me a lot of attention. He had a girlfriend and he was grooming me for sex. I would stay overnight with the sisters for sleepovers. During the night, he would come into their bedroom, wake me up and take me back to his bedroom for sex. I didn't know what I was doing. No one ever talked to me about sex, having a period, nothing. This went on for almost a year. At the time, I didn't tell anyone. Who would I have told? Besides, I didn't know there was something to tell. Today, I know his behavior was wrong and it was not my fault. I also found out later from my girlfriends that he had done the same thing to another one of their friends. And so she stopped coming to their house in 10th grade, I started dating a guy, began having sex with him because isn't that what you're supposed to do? I married him when I was 18, got divorced when I was 20. Lordy, I didn't know what I was doing. By now, my anxiety and unquenchable thirst for love and relationship, fantasy and obsessive thinking, you name it, were ratcheting up more and more as the years progressed. My sex and love addiction was powerful and I was powerless. I can remember feeling like I had a big S on my chest for sinner, 
feeling a tremendous amount of shame and blame toward myself. I felt lost, sad, lonely. I was starving for love, validation, any external approval. One of my favorite trauma and recovery experts and authors says, it's not the question, why the addiction? It's why the pain? By the grace of God, I attended college at 23 years of age and thankfully completed my degree. For were it not for that, I would not have the job that I have today and I'm greatly blessed. God did for me what I could not do for myself. I would take classes in the mornings, work in the afternoons, and at that time was having an affair with a married man that lasted for several years. My sex and love addiction continued to rule and reign over my life for the next several decades. I'd been married, divorced, lived with a guy, had sex with other guys, co-signed for a car once for a guy. Hell, I paid the loan off. He kept the car. I attended college, had a couple of affairs with married men, was in and out of an 18-year relationship with a married man who was supposedly going to get a divorce was romantically involved with men I worked with, went through a period when I didn't have any men in my life, attended Al-Anon, went to therapy. Seriously, what the fuck? Insanity, unmanageability, and powerlessness. So now, what brought me into SLAA? Well, two years ago, I began a relationship July of 2019 and got into a new relationship with a guy I'd known from church when I was 14 years old. I reached out to him via Facebook to see how he was doing. I was bored with my life and his pictures looked cute. He was sexy and cute and his profile said he was single. My magical Cinderella fantasy, happily ever after, love addictive thinking took over my brain and body and I became curious, inquisitive and high. He was charming and sexy and funny and a player and a liar and an expert selfie picture taker that included his face and other body parts. He liked receiving those same kind of pictures as well. He told me, Everyone does that today in the dating world. Um, okay. And I believed him. He lived in the basement of his mama's house and had a convincing story about why he was living there. I knew from the first time we spoke on the phone, something is just not quite right. In our first phone conversation, he told me all about his two ex-wives, everything they did wrong, He was a blamer. Why he left a couple of his jobs, why he was living in his parents' house, blah, blah, blah. I felt an internal alarm going off, but I shushed that voice because he was sexy and single and he was gonna be my happily ever after story. In August of 2019, I flew up to see him for a lunch date. I was high. I desperately wanted the fairy tale happily ever after story. Besides, I thought, I've been in therapy forever. 
And I'd been going to Al-Anon, so I've got this. Unbeknownst to me, my love addict was in the corner doing push-ups, just waiting for her opportunity to jump in. And oh, yes, he lived in another state. Yes, that is a red flag. Not in the same zip code as me, but I was high. I was focused on the fairy tale, the happily ever after. The story that I wanted it to be, not the red flags. Those were just fancy party decorations. So now we're at lunch together. When we finished lunch, he said, let's go to the car. We haven't spent enough time kissing. I teehee giggled, walked to the car holding his hand. I was high. I'd picked a cute outfit and thought so much of myself at that moment. And I did do good at that moment till we got in the car. I was completely unaware of how totally inappropriate and respect, disrespectful his behavior was. He wasn't wanting to just kiss. He wanted to have sex in his car while sitting in the airport hotel parking lot. And I froze. I went along to get along. I did not remember what happened in that car until months later. Months later, I'd gone for an acupuncture appointment as part of my recovery and talked to the therapist about how much I missed him in that session. And she said to me, something seems off to me about him. She continued to say, I think you're lucky that it ended. Wow, okay. That night, while I was sleeping, I suddenly woke up out of sleep and remembered what had happened that day. I got out my journal and wrote down everything I could remember about that afternoon in his car, in the hotel airport parking lot during my first visit to see him. I had not seen him in over 40 years, and that, that was a traumatic experience for me. I just didn't know it at the time. So I continued to long distance date him until February of 2020. Oh, it was a very confusing relationship. He would text me every morning and evening, these sweet messages and these heart emojis he would call me every day. Hell, we were even reading a book about how to do a healthy relationship. I told him I was ready for a real relationship and asked him if he was as well. He said, yes. I thought we were on the same page. I was so proud of myself because I wasn't obsessively calling him or texting him. I thought I was doing everything right. The relationship ended when I asked him, what exactly does this relationship mean to you? Because I could feel him pulling away. And it was becoming extremely anxious and confused when that happened. His response to my question was, I need to give your heart some time to calm down. What? Oh, God. I didn't know. That was February 2020. 
Thank God for the pandemic in March of 2020. Once again, God did for me what I couldn't do for myself. The entire world shut down. And I was left with myself, my pain, and the opportunity to do my deep healing work. And that is exactly what I did. I went to see a CSAT therapist who also referred me to a brain spotting therapist to heal trauma. And he was really cool. He said to me, uh, Karen, it sounds to me like you got played. And I think you need to start attending SLAA meetings. I'd never heard of SLAA meetings. I didn't even know what he was talking about. I began doing breath work, tapping, energy work. Lord, I'd have swallowed a pebble on the street if somebody told me that would have helped me. My body had stored a lot of trauma, and somatic work was the way for me to heal it. I was in so much pain. The withdrawal was hell. We would occasionally text each other over the next several months, and then in July of 2020, I stopped texting him, and he stopped texting me. I think, of him, I think about him every once in a while, but I give myself the three second rule. I say, okay, in three seconds, picture a red stop sign, or I've actually written his name on a piece of toilet paper and flushed it before. I began working with my sponsor, attending meetings and doing my step work. Since beginning recovery from sex and love addiction, I've read, listened and watched YouTube videos on everything I could find that would help me heal. I knew I had to work this program because up till now, nothing, nothing had healed my sex and love addiction. In the book, Ready to Heal, Breaking Free of Addictive Relationships by Kelly McDaniels, I'm going to read a couple sentences that she states. It's no surprise that our culture is addicted to love. The sappy love songs, the enticing ads for romantic getaways, and the desire to be cherished by a special someone will never lose their appeal. But for some women, this poses a significant problem. Because of their insatiable desire for love, they will do anything to find it and ultimately land in a destructive, addictive relationship over and over again, causing incredible harm. So what is it like for me now? Well, this is not easy work. And at times it's extremely uncomfortable, but I have learned, I have learned that being uncomfortable will pass. I have learned that my emotions are just energy in motion. They will flow. My recovery in SLAA is a rebirthing process, a letting go of my former self and a learning of how to live an empowered life right here, right now. It requires me to attend my meetings, call my sponsor, work my steps, be of service, love myself, my higher power, and my wounded inner self. Today, I am grateful to be spiritually, emotionally, and physically sober. The SLAA program has been a pivotal point in my recovery and in my life. I am thankful for my last qualifier because that painful ending is what started my new beginning. And I will end with this. In my anxious moments, I place my hands over my heart and I remind myself, 
I see you. I love you. I've got you. You are not alone. God loves you. These beautiful women on this meeting love you. And there is a beautiful life to live now. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being here. What a blessing. And with that, I will pass. That's it for this month's speaker meeting. Stay tuned to Sober Sisters Talk for next month's speaker. Thank you.